0: Again, Father, with Your Word open before us, we pray that our hearts will be open before it. That You would use Your truth to correct us, to instruct us in righteousness. We pray that we would learn much this morning, that You would grant to me clarity where clarity will be needed. And that as a result of our time spent in Your Word, that You would be glorified and honored and made more clear to us as to who You are and what You have done for us in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in His name. And for his sake, amen. Well, we are done with our study of the book of Acts, at least as far as a uh, sequential exposition of the book is concerned. And now we're what we're doing for this week and next week is sort of tying up some loose ends and answering some questions that have come up as a result of going through the book of Acts. Now, periodically as we've gone through Acts, we've waited until we've gotten to the end of a series, sort of a theme that has been developed in the book. And then what we've done is gone back and sort of encapsulated the whole theme and looked at all of the texts that are in the book of Acts that pertain to a certain theme and sort of tried to tie it all together. Remember we did that with the resurrection, we did that with infant baptism, we did that with uh, miracles most recently. We're doing that again today, but this time the subject is the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel. And we're not so much concerned with the means by which the gospel is communicated. Obviously, the gospel is a verbal message and it is intended to be heard and it is intended to be preached and proclaimed and shared. But what we are what we want to focus on this morning is the content of the gospel in the New Testament. And in order to show you how important this subject is, I want you to turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 1, where our scripture reading was from. We're going to make a couple of observations here from... Galatians chapter 1, and then we're going to jump into the book of Acts. Galatians chapter 1, the book of Galatians, was written after Paul's first missionary journey, before his second missionary journey, and before the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. So it is written between Acts 14 and Acts 15. Now Paul had gone through the province of Galatia, and he had preached the gospel there, established churches in different cities in the province of Galatia, and then he got back to Pisidian Antioch, and news reached his ears that no sooner had He left the region of Galatia than false teachers had come in to Galatia. And these men were claiming to be Christians. They were brethren of a sort. They were Jews. And they came into the churches and they began to tell people, you know, what Paul told you was right. Up to a point. You must believe that Jesus is the Savior and place your faith in Him. Plus, you must be circumcised. After all, if you're going to be the people of God, you have got to have the sign of the Old Covenant. You can't honestly expect to enjoy the blessings of the New Covenant without taking upon yourself some of the forms and functions of the Old Covenant, namely... Circumcision. So news of this reached Paul's ears that these men had come in. They had letters from Jerusalem, supposedly. Letters from James, supposedly. They had all of the credentials. And they said, Paul taught you the truth, but here we just need to add a little... Just twist a little something here. You you, you forgot Paul left this out. You add this, and then you'll have the full Christian life. Paul heard about this, and he sat down, and he wrote the most passionate, the most aggressive, the the most uh, quickly written, the most emotional letter... In all of the New Testament, this is Paul on fire. Because when Paul heard about this, he sat down, friends, and listen to this. Paul came unglued. Unglued. He went through the roof. And he sat down and he wrote the book of Galatians. And it is, it is, I've been wanting to preach through the book of Galatians for ten years, friends. It is the most passionate, aggressive, sort of grit your teeth and go at it that you'll ever see the Apostle Paul. You never read anything like this elsewhere in the New Testament from the pen of the Apostle Paul. I mean some harsh stuff that he says towards these men. Galatians chapter 1. Look what Paul says beginning at verse 6. I am amazed. I'm bewildered. I'm perplexed. I'm shocked is the word. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Paul uses a military word for deserting. You have turned your back on your commander. You have turned your back on the Lord. And I am shocked that you did this so quickly. How long had it taken him? Not decades, not generations, not even years. This is months. This is literally months after Paul had been there and established the churches and appointed elders. These men had come in and these brand new Christians in the faith had begun listening to their false gospel. They're different doctrines. They're doctrines of demons. And they had begun to accept this and say, okay, well, we'll circumcise our children. And Gentiles were starting to buy into this, thinking that circumcision was necessary. And Paul says, I'm shocked that it took you such a short amount of time to turn your back on the grace of Christ and embrace a different gospel. And it's not a gospel of the same kind, Paul says. It's actually not the same gospel at all. It is a different gospel. So it's not like the gospel has two twins, the circumcision version and the uncircumcision version, and you can get saved through either one of them. It is that this gospel is the one pure gospel, and then you have every other gospel, a different gospel. And you have turned your back on Christ, and you have embraced a gospel of a totally different kind that is unable to save you, and you have departed from the grace that is in Christ. And Paul says, I'm shocked that it took you just a couple of months to do this. Now, I want you to notice just a couple of observations here from Galatians chapter 1. First of all, I want you to notice how narrow Paul is. Do you notice that? I mean, come on, Paul. You seriously going to take an issue with this little, little tiny deviation from the faith? But look how narrow he is. There is the gospel, friends. It's the gospel. And then there is everything else. There is one way, one message, one truth. Paul is a very narrow individual. And he is focusing on, an, on a very narrow road. And he is saying you have left the straight and the narrow. You have left the fine line of the gospel and you have embraced something else. How narrow he is. I've shared this illustration with you before, but I'll tell you again. About um, seven years ago or so, there was a controversy amongst the ministerial, the pastors in the area and all the different churches. And the issue of the, uh, the subject of baptism came up and whether baptism was necessary for salvation or not. And so we had uh, several meetings between all of the pastors and there were five of us that were holding the line and saying baptism is not necessary for salvation. That is a different gospel. You cannot add anything to it. It's a different gospel. Five of us. There was about nine other pastors on the other side who were willing to embrace this other false teacher who was teaching that baptism was necessary for salvation. And in the process of all of these meetings that we had at one particular meeting, one of the pastors who still pastors a church here in town said to the rest of us, said to the five of us, look. In the New Testament, Paul preached the gospel of grace, James preached the gospel of works, and Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, and you can be saved by any one of those three gospels. Now friends, I about dropped my teeth when I heard that. I wanted to employ the Nehemiah principle. You know what the Nehemiah principle is? Nehemiah 13.25. I contended with them, and I struck some of them and pulled out their hair. Nehemiah was a godly man. And I almost came unglued. And friends, I realized at that point that my departure from that corruption was long overdue. Are you to tell me that when Paul says if anybody preaches any other gospel than what I preach to you, let him be accursed? Are you to tell me that Paul was pronouncing an anathema on Jesus and on James for their different gospel? Is that what I'm to make of that? What nonsense. And with all the love I can muster, friends, this really grieves me. I say this. That is one of the stupidest statements I have ever heard uttered from the mouth of a pastor in my life. That is horrible, horrible corruption of the truth. Notice how narrow Paul is. Second, I want you to notice how even the smallest change is a corruption of the grandest proportions. Even the smallest change is a corruption of grandest proportions. Look, it's such a small issue, isn't it? Circumcision. We're talking about a small procedure. It just takes a few minutes. It's just such a small issue. Paul, can't we just get along on the things on which we agree? And if I didn't hear this If I heard this once, I've heard it a thousand times since the issue of baptism came up amongst the ministerial. Can't we all just get along? Is this really something that's worth dividing over? I mean, they believe in the same Jesus, right? And they believe that salvation is by grace and that salvation is by faith. And they believe in the Trinity and they believe in the inspiration of Scriptures and they believe that Jesus died for sins, that He rose again, that He ascended to heaven, that He's the only Savior. They believe all of these things. Can't we just... Sort of set aside this one little tiny thing, circumcision. Cut them some slack, Paul. Give them a break. Give them some leeway. Give them some room. And Paul says, no, it's a different gospel. It's a different gospel. I don't care what you add to it. It's a different gospel. Entirely. Even the smallest, smallest alteration is a corruption of the grandest proportions. To prove that, look at the third thing I want you to notice from the passage. And that is the damnation that is pronounced upon those who would alter it. Verse uh, 8. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you any gospel other than the one that you've received, that we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. And the word accursed there is anathema. He is to be anathema. Anathema is the strongest Greek word that Paul could have used for damnation. He had no Greek word that was more colorful, more vehement, more passionate, stronger than anathema. If anybody comes to you, whether he's an angel or another apostle or anybody else, doesn't matter what his status, what his rank is, and he preaches to you a gospel other than the one we preached while we were there, he is to be eternally damned. Oh, I bet you didn't think apostles talked like that, did you? Is this the same apostle who said, if I don't have love, I don't have anything? It most certainly is. Why? Because the most unloving thing to do is to allow somebody to proceed in their error and thus be eternally damned. Strong condemnation upon those who would preach any other gospel than the gospel of the New Testament. So what is the gospel that the apostles preached? Well, friends, we have it recorded for us in the New Testament. It's important that you and I get this right because if we are going to be faithful witnesses for Jesus Christ, we have to get this message down. I mean, is it too much to suggest that we ought to be able to at least nail down this one thing, the gospel? Is that too much? I don't think that that's too much to ask. I don't think it's too much to ask that we would at least get this one thing right because this is our one message. This is what we live for. This is what we die for. This is what we preach. This is what we proclaim. This is what Sunday school, this is what the equipping of the saints is all about. It's what Awana is all about. It's what the Word is all about. It is the eternal salvation of people. So let's just all get on the same page and get this one thing down right. And if we're going to be faithful witnesses, we have to do that. And if we're going to be effective ambassadors for Jesus Christ, we have to get this right. Why? Because what a waste of time it is to teach and preach and proclaim and share and witness and write about and talk about and give to people a gospel that is unable to save them because it's not the true gospel. And to waste your entire life sharing a message that can't save, only to fill churches with false converts and damn people for all of eternity. What a horrible waste of a life that is. So if we're going to be effective, we've got to get this one thing down. And if we're going to preserve the truth for the next generation, we need to get this one thing down. So let's get this straight. John MacArthur writes, To believe wrongly about the saving gospel is to be eternally lost. And anyone who attempts to tamper with the gospel is deadly because they lure the unwary to eternal damnation. So here's the question we've got to ask. What was the gospel message that the apostles preached? It is revealed for us. It's in the book of Acts. So what I want you to do now is turn to the book of Acts chapter 2 and we're going to look at the gospel message that the apostles preached. And we're going to ask ourselves, what did they say when Paul was trying to persuade men to place faith in Jesus Christ? What was the message that he gave to them? What did he say to them? How did he explain it to them? What issues did he bring up? What were the truths that he repeated over and over again? What was the gospel that Peter preached and Paul preached? And friends, Once we get that down, once we find out what that is, may I suggest to you that you and I have no authority to alter it? We have no authority whatsoever to alter it. We have no authority to gussy it up. We have no authority to make it palatable, to make it pander to the people, to make it culturally relevant. We have no authority to do any of that. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, says, After the gospel has been found effectual in the eternal salvation of untold multitudes, It seems rather late in the day to alter it, and since it is the revelation of the all-wise and unchanging God, it appears somewhat audacious to attempt its improvement. Amen to that, huh? A little late in the day to go altering the Gospel, don't you think? A little late in the day to say we're going to improve it, we're going to gutsy it up, we're going to make it relevant, we're going to draw people to it, we're going to do whatever we can to make it marketable, to make it palatable, to make it powerful, to make it more culturally sensitive. You and I don't have the authority to do that. So let's look at the book of Acts. We're going to begin in chapter two. We're going to begin in chapter two, and here's what we're going to do. And we're going to go quick, so you're going to have your Bibles open on your laps because here's what we're going to do. We're going to cover 13 different public proclamations of the gospel in the book of Acts. We're going to spend just a couple of moments on each one, looking at a couple of verses to pull out some of the key things that we see repeated over and over and over again as we go through the book of Acts. So we're going to look at 13 of the evangelistic, apostolic proclamations of the gospel. So these are public speeches. Okay? these are not. We're not going to go through the private uh, Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch or Paul in the Philippian jailer, not the private things, but when the apostles stood up to preach the gospel, what was the message that they gave? Now, you can go back through the book of Acts, and if you think, well, Jim, you're just sort of hand-pecking through the book of Acts to prove your point. I just challenge you to go through, read the entire book of Acts, and ask yourself, have I hand-pecked anything? I'm trying to just give you a broad sampling of what's in the book of Acts. Because, to be quite frank, we don't have time to look at every single message and and pull it all out. We've looked at all of these passages in their context already. So if you want a more thorough evaluation of that, we have tapes and CDs for your listening misery, if that's what you choose to do. Uh, Give me some grace here for just a second, okay? I'm going to try and keep 13 passages straight in my mind, all at the same time. So if I misstep and I say Peter instead of Paul, Paul instead of Peter, Jesus instead of Cornelius... Cut me a little bit of slack on that and, and, and just kind of understand that I've, I've got a lot jumbling around and I I'll, I'll hope it all comes out in a sequential order. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Beginning in verse 14, the Apostle Peter describes the phenomena of the tongues that they had seen and how that was connected with Joel's prophecy. But then he gets down to the meat of the issue in verse 22, which is the gospel. And he says, men, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. And then he quotes Psalm 16. Look that he mentions the resurrection again in verse 31 and 32. God raised him up again. Verse 33, he exalted him to the right hand of God. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he talks about their sin. He indicts them for their personal rejection of the holiness of God and the Righteous One, the Lord Jesus Christ. And gives them an indictment for their sin. He mentions the death of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And when He gets all done with that, they say, uh, men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? Verse 38, what is the answer? Repent and then be baptized because of, not in order to get, but the word for there means because of the remission of your sins. Since your sins have been washed away, you need to repent and then be baptized. Obey the Lord and believer's baptism. So he mentions repentance, which includes the subject of faith implicitly. Repentance. And he emphasizes the forgiveness of sins. The next message is in chapter 3. Beginning in verse 12. This is in the temple at the beautiful gate after Peter had healed the crippled man at the entrance to the gate. Peter says in verse 13, The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate. Notice the indictment for personal sin, right? He lays it right on their doorstep. You have sinned. You've rejected your Savior. The end of verse 13, you disowned him in the presence of Pilate when you decided to release him. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you put to death the Prince of Life. There's the mention of the death of Christ. Verse 16, Uh, Sorry, verse 15. Whom God raised from the dead. There's the resurrection. Verse 16. On the basis of faith in his name. It's the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Then Peter goes on to uh, give a warning in verse 23 of the results of rejecting this Messiah. And it will be that every soul that does not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And in verse 15. 26, for you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. That's repentance. So he talks about the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, repentance, faith, and he indicts them for their sin. You're starting to notice a pattern? You're going to see a pattern as we go through this. The next was in chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man, that's the man they healed back in chapter 3, As to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you, that by all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, there's the indictment of sin, and the mention of the death of of Christ, whom God raised from the dead. There's the mention of the resurrection. By this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. And there's salvation in no other name, for there's no other name given among men, whereby we must be saved. Notice the indictment for personal sin, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the responsibility to believe on him who is the only way for salvation. That's the gospel in Acts chapter 4. Turn over to Acts chapter 5, verse 29. This is a perfect summary. They told him you have to stop teaching in this man's name and you're bringing his blood upon us, which means that Peter had indicted them for their personal sin. Verse twenty, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you would put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Notice the emphasis on the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the personal sin, repentance and the emphasis on the forgiveness of sins. Turn over to chapter 7. This message is 50 verses long, actually 53 verses long, and I'm just going to sum it up in one sentence. Stephen before the Sanhedrin indicts these people and the entire nation for their entire history of persistent and consistent rejection of God, His way, His word, and His prophets. And then Stephen indicts them in verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. And you received the law as ordained by angels, yet you did not keep it. You've rejected the righteous one. You've rejected God. You've rejected His word. You've rejected His prophets. And you're all guilty. Now you'll notice there's no mention of the death of Christ, or sorry, the resurrection of Christ, there's no mention of faith, there's no mention of repentance, there's no mention of the forgiveness of sins. Why is that? Because he was buried beneath a heap of stones before he could ever get to that part of the gospel message. He had spent the entire message just talking about their sin. It's all the farther he got. And he, and he nailed that point home. To the point where they just picked up stones and killed him. They could not tolerate being indicted for their sin like that. All he preached was their sin. Sin, sin, sin. You're guilty, guilty, guilty. That was it. And they buried him beneath stones. It's all the father he got. Next one is in Acts chapter 13, sorry, ten. This is Peter and Cornelius and all those in Cornelius' household. He spends verses 34 through 38 talking about Jesus being attested by signs and wonders and all the miracles that he did. He gets down to verse 39. He says, we are witnesses of all these things that he did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death. There's the death of Christ hung him on a cross, God raised him up, there's the resurrection, granted him to become visible to witnesses who were appointed beforehand by God, and we ate and we drank with him. Verse 42, he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge. Notice the the reference to judgment. Judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. Death of Christ, resurrection of Christ, judgment to come. Believing in his name, forgiveness of sins. That's their gospel. Next one is in Acts chapter 13. This is Paul in Pisidian Antioch. After spending the first good part of the message talking about all the predictions of the prophets that were going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul in the synagogue says in verse 28, and though no ground was found for putting him to death, they asked Pilate and he executed Did he be executed and when they carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross, laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Notice the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he appeared to all those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Look at you see the resurrection mentioned, by the way, in verse thirty three, verse thirty four and verse thirty seven. In verse 38 and 39, the Apostle emphasizes the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Belief, freedom from sin, forgiveness of sins, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And then there's a, there's a promise of judgment. As Paul says, if you reject this Messiah, verse 41 and 42, you can expect a judgment that the prophets predicted. The next gospel proclamation is over in Acts chapter 17. This is Paul on the, on the Mars Hill before the Areopagus. He spends the first part of the, the message talking about who God is. This time, Paul begins with who God is. Here's who God is. He's He is not created by hands. He's not served by men's hands. He doesn't need anybody. He's the creator, the sustainer of everything, the redeemer of anybody who trusts in Him. This is who God is. And then look, he he indicts them for their sin in verse 29. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. You're guilty of idolatry. That's what Paul says. You're idol worshippers and you're idolaters, and you've sinned against this God who created you, this God whom you do not know. Look at verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that people everywhere should repent repent. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So there is uh, the nature of who God is, an indictment for their sin of idolatry, the promise of judgment to come, the command to repent, and a mention of the resurrection, and by implication, the death of Jesus Christ. The next gospel presentation is over in Acts chapter 22. Verses 1 to 21, this is where Paul was arrested in the temple. He gets up on the steps of the fortress Antonia and begins to present his defense before the people. This message mostly has to do with Paul's own autobiographical sort of perspective on his salvation, of how he was saved, how he used to persecute the church. They all knew this. He's speaking to Jews, some of whom had had a hand in crucifying Jesus. They had had a hand in putting him to death. They knew of the resurrection. So all of that is shared knowledge with his audience. So Paul doesn't really talk about that that much. Look at verse 16, which is the emphasis that Paul has. And this is kind of almost his closer. Now, why do you delay, get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name? That was what uh, Ananias said to Paul after Paul got saved. And the emphasis is on Paul's personal sin and his need for forgiveness, that that forgiveness comes through Jesus. And that by believing in him, you have the forgiveness of sins and your sins washed away. Chapter 23 is the next public declaration. This is the Apostle Paul before the Sanhedrin. They brought him in. They said, men and brethren, I live my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Boom! Right across the kisser. By order of the high priest who had Paul punched in the mouth. And then when Paul recovered from that, he got mad at the high priest. Remember that? And the high priest rebuked him. Paul apologized. And then he knew that this is a kangaroo court. I just got to get in the most important essence of everything I want to tell him. I am on trial today for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And the only thing he can mention is the resurrection of the dead. And then everything devolves into chaos. The next proclamation is in chapter 24, and this is before Felix. Paul answers the charges that the Jews had brought before him. And down in verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the the wicked. It's the resurrection again that is the central issue. Now you say, but Paul didn't indict them for their sin. He didn't mention faith. He didn't mention believing. He didn't mention repentance. He didn't mention the forgiveness of sins in those two instances. No, he didn't because they're legal trials. So he's really on trial for his life and he's defending himself, but at the same time he's trying to work in the essence of the gospel. He boils it all down and he says it's the resurrection. And so he gets that in. Next one is in chapter 24, verses 24 and 25. This is the number 12. We've got this one and one more and then we're done. Not for the day, but for our trek through the book of Acts. Verse 24, But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a witness, and sent for Paul, and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. What is that, my friends? That is an indictment for personal sin and how faith in Christ is the answer for that personal sin. Chapter 26, Before Agrippa, not a legal trial, so Paul has all the freedom he wants to sort of Promote the gospel as much as he wants, and if the essence of it is given in verse 18, Paul was sent to the Jews and to the Gentiles, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, that's repentance, from the dominion of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And the rest of the message uh, talks about the resurrection in verse 8, the resurrection down in verse 23. And in sandwiched in between this is this commission to tell people to repent and place their faith in this crucified and risen Messiah. Now you notice there are four themes that cropped up over and over and over as we went through that. God, His holiness, who He is, in the case of proclaiming that to the Jews, they understood that. They didn't have to lay that foundation. But when Paul was on Mars Hill, or when Paul was before some of the other magistrates who were Romans or Greeks, he explained that. This is the unknown God. This is the one you worship in ignorance. This is who God is. He explained that. Second, sin. The emphasis on sin. Nearly every single time we see them proclaim the gospel, the emphasis is on personal sin. You are guilty before this God for what you have done. The third element that they emphasized was the person of Christ. His work on the cross for them, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and in most cases, his ascension they mentioned. And the fourth element was repentance and faith. As Paul says in Acts chapter 20, I preach to you solemnly repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ publicly and from house to house. What was his gospel? That's it. God, sin, Christ, and our response, which is repenting faith in that Savior. That's the gospel. Now, why do we go through all of that? Because now I want to compare that to what typically passes as a gospel message in today's evangelical scene. So I want you to not only be able to identify the truth, but I want you to be able to also recognize error when it is given to you. So how is the gospel typically presented in our evangelical scene today? Well, you hear it presented in these terms. And God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. How many of you have heard that? Almost everybody, right? Why is that? That's how the gospel starts, right? Let me ask you a question. Did you read that anywhere in the book of Acts when we were going through that? You think I hand-packed? Go back and read the whole book. Let me give you an observation, and I don't want you to make too much of this observation. I want you to misunderstand me, so I'm going to explain this carefully. Because I don't want you to twist what I'm saying. and I don't want you to leave here thinking that I'm some wingnut. But here's the observation The love of God is nowhere mentioned in the book of Acts. The love of in fact, the word love. Is not even mentioned in the book of Acts. Nowhere in 28 chapters. Now, I find that curious. I don't want you to make too much out of that. I don't want you to walk away from here saying, Oh, see, Jim's a Calvinist. He doesn't believe God loves anybody. That's baloney. Not that I'm a Calvinist, but I do believe that God loves everybody. I believe He loves men. I believe He loves women. I believe He loves His creation. He loves all of His creatures. He loves humanity. He loves all of the nations. There is a love that God has for all people. I don't deny that at all. So why is it that love is never mentioned in the book of Acts? It's certainly not because God doesn't love people. He does. It's not because the church did not love God. It did. It's not because God did not love His church. He did. It's not because in the church people weren't loving each other. You read through the book of Acts, you see the love of God and the love of people for God and the love of people for other people all over its pages. It's illustrated. It's exemplified. It's lived out. It's typified. It's, it's, it's just demonstrated in people's lives. So the love of God is all over there, but it's never mentioned. Why is it never mentioned? I'll tell you why it's never mentioned. The apostles never based their appeal to people to come to Christ on the basis of the love of God. They never started out saying, oh, God loves you. Oh, He loves you. If you just knew the love of God, can't you feel the love of God? Don't you need the love of God? Oh, God loves you. It's all warm and happy. And oh, you need the love. Won't you accept the love? Can't you feel the love? Won't you receive the love? Invite the love into your life. That's not the gospel. That's not what they preached. They didn't emphasize the love of God. What did they emphasize? The wrath of God against sin and the need to come to Christ not for love, but for forgiveness. That's what we need. Forgiveness. God loves you and He has a wonderful plan for your life? Friends, the message of the Gospels was God is angry with you and He has a hell of a plan for your life. Literally speaking. It is hell and damnation that you face if you will not trust Christ for salvation. That was the Gospel. Not come as if the lost are supposed to hear us say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And they're supposed to say, Oh, I had no idea God loved me. Well, I'll just rush into the kingdom then. The reality is that lost men are not wooed by the love of God. They see the love of God in their life every day that He gives rain on the just and the unjust. And Paul says these things should turn you to repentance. But you have spurned the love of God. People know intuitively that God loves them and that He showers them with grace, that He showers them with benefits and blessings, and they hate Him in spite of it. The problem is not that men don't know that God loves them. The problem is that men are enemies of God and they're under His wrath as children of wrath, deserving of eternal damnation for even their smallest of sins. John Bunyan said, there is enough sin in any one of my prayers to damn the whole world. Friends, that is a good understanding of the gravity of our sin. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. You never hear the apostles do that. That's not their appeal. Second, you hear it presented in these terms. All you need to do is accept Christ. You ever heard that one? Probably the most popular uh, Christian cliche of our day, if not all time. You just need to accept Christ. Really? Is that what I need? To accept him? I need to sort of evaluate that he is worthy enough to come into my life, and I need to accept him? And I need to ask him into my life? Is that really what the gospel is? Did you hear the apostles say that? Paul before the Sanhedrin, look, guys, all you really need to do is accept Christ. That's not what they needed. These are the people that had rejected him. And Paul didn't say, no, you need to change your mind and accept him. That's not the gospel. The apostles never used that language. Now you say, but we're just trying to make the gospel relevant and contemporary and use sort of cultural contemporary jargon to let people know what they mean. Listen, unbelievers don't understand what the term accepting Christ means. What does that communicate to them? That my life is a piece of pie and I'm missing this little sliver. And if I just get the Jesus piece and I put that into the pie, then I'll have a fulfilled life, a happy life, a joyful life. Everything will be better because i got Jesus now and I've accepted Him into my life. Listen, friends. I don't need to accept Christ. I need to be accepted by Christ. That is my problem. I'm a sinner. How can I stand in the presence of a holy God? A righteous God who sees every thought... Every motive, every deed, every action, hears every word. How can I stand in His presence holy? I need to be accepted by Him. I'm unacceptable to Him. I don't need to accept Him. He has to accept me. How is that going to happen? That's where the Gospel comes in. You tell people you just need to accept Christ. If I were to take you out on the streets of Sandpoint right now, and we were going to begin talking to just every average Joe that's not in church this morning about their spiritual life and what happened to them as a kid, probably five out of ten of them will tell you, I've accepted Christ. Yet they're not in a church. They're living an immoral lifestyle. They have no hunger for spiritual things. There's no evidence of of regeneration or being born again in their life whatsoever. Why? Because somebody somewhere along the line said, you just need to accept Christ. Oh, I accept Him. I accept Him as Savior. He's my personal Savior. Now I'll continue in my sin. And they've never been regenerated. They've never been born again by the Spirit of God. I'm tipping over a lot of sacred cows this morning, aren't I? Sacred cows make the best hamburger. And i got three or four more sacred cows to tip over before we're done this morning. Or you hear salvation presented in these terms. What you need is a personal relationship with Jesus. Ever hear that one? No, I don't. Apostles never said that. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that man's greatest need is a personal relationship with the Savior. My need is forgiveness. My need is atonement. My need is somebody to take my place and suffer my judgment. That's what my need is. Friends, I have plenty of relationships. I don't need another one. And you say to the lost person, what you really need is a personal relationship with Jesus. And they're thinking in their mind, I've got hundreds of relationships. What what is Jesus just my buddy who whispers things in my ears, and I go to him when when I need something, and he comes in and kind of starts this relationship, and people are in for the relationship, and they haven't come to Christ for forgiveness, for salvation, for deliverance, and for new birth. I don't need a personal relationship. I have plenty of relationships. What I need is forgiveness. How do I get forgiveness? Not how do I accept Christ? Not how do I feel the love of God? Not how do I get a relationship? How can I stand in the presence of a holy God and not be consumed by His wrath and of against sin and His holiness? That's the key question. Or you hear Jesus, and here's the fourth: When you hear Jesus presented as the answer to all life's problems, do you need uh, money? Do you need a better life? Do you need a better marriage? Do you need help raising your kids? Do you need a better sex life? Do you need a promotion? Do you need a better parking spot at work? Do you need uh, your hair to grow back? Do you need a, a hangnail fixed? What is it that you need? Jesus is the answer. Just ask Jesus and He'll give you all the comfort and aid and solace and all of this that you want. And so we have tons and tons, thousands upon thousands of people who are coming to Jesus because they want purpose, they want direction, they want comfort, they want aid, they want finances, they want happiness, they want joy, they want comfort. And Scripture does not offer Jesus to us in any of those terms. None of them. Scripture offers us to, uh, Him to us as Savior and Lord. And we are to call people to that Christ. Savior and Lord. From sin. Not the Christ of comfort and personal development. That's the Rick Warren, Joyce Myers, T.D. Jakes, Joel Olstein Gospel. Jesus Christ is not the Christian version of the Oprah Winfrey Self-Improvement Life Enhancement Life Coach Program. That's not who Jesus is. He's Savior and Lord. Let me give you a couple other ones. Don't be think that just because you said the prayer that you're saved. I talk to people all the time. Well, my child is just living a prolific, immoral, adulterous, fornicating, drunken life. He has no interest in spiritual things, none whatsoever. Well, you think I still think he's saved? I mean, when he was four years old, he said the prayer. Oh, well, he said the prayer. Well, he's saved. And we all know if we can just get people to utter the magic mantra, that that gets them right into the kingdom of heaven. Right? Wrong. Now, people have said the prayer. They're still lost. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands have said the prayer. And I don't know how many people I have talked to who have never been born again, but they have said the magic mantra, right? Picking their teeth and wiping their eyes. And yeah, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I know. I need you in my life. I need a life of purpose. Could you come into my life in Jesus' name? Amen. There, I said the prayer and I'm saved. It's not how it works, is it? Don't think that just because you said the prayer that you're in the kingdom no prayer can save you in and of itself. We are not saved by prayer or a prayer through grace without works by grace alone without works. We're saved by grace through faith, whether the prayer is ever uttered or not. Don't think that an altar call saves you. Oh, I went forward. Really? So you walked 20, 30 steps? What is that? Did you walk a path and it makes you saved? A couple weeks ago when I was up in uh, Creston preaching at the Blossom Fest Festival, um, after we got done, I, I preached judgment and faith and, and judgment to come. And Christ as Savior and Him alone. And we got to the end of it. I got all the way to the back of the auditorium. And these two guys walked up and they said, man, that was the best message we ever heard. We thought, man, thank you for preaching. That was great. Good to hear the truth finally proclaimed. Just as clear as a bell. Everything was good. But, but, okay, here it comes. You didn't ask people to come forward. You didn't give an altar call. No, I didn't give an altar call. Altar calls don't save anybody. But you didn't tell people how to get saved. I said, I did tell them how to get saved. Repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's what I told them. And I told them that over and over and over again. But you didn't tell them how to get saved. I said, yes, I did. Five minutes we went back and forth, round and around. Friends, I didn't tell them this, but I'm going to tell you this. Altar calls have done more to destroy evangelical testimony and evangelism in the church of Jesus Christ in North America and around the world than any other single practice in the last 200 years of church history. Absolutely destroyed it. Why? And I told them this. They can get saved in their seat by doing what the Bible tells them to do. They don't need to come forward. And I would rather have four people get saved just doing what I told them to do than 40 people come forward and having four of them get saved and 36 walk away thinking they're saved, having never believed on Jesus Christ and putting their faith in an altar call. Man, I don't. I could go on and on and on and on and on and on and on, and on with corruptions to the Gospel today. How did it get to this point? How did we get to this point in evangelical Christianity? I'll tell you what it is. We live in a narcissistic, man-centered, self-exalting, self-focused, man-focused world. And the church has taken the gospel and they said, how can we present this beautiful, glorious truth to this sort of narcissistic culture in terms that they will embrace? Oh, we got it. What you need is a personal relationship. What you need is to accept Jesus and determine that he's worthy to fit into your piece of the pie so that you can have a healthy, self-fulfilled, self-indulgent life. And you know what we're doing? You know what the church is doing? We're taking an imaginary Jesus and we're preaching him and we're asking people to place their faith, a man-centered faith, a man-created faith in an imaginary Jesus who has no ability to save them whatsoever and then we think that they have the forgiveness of sins. If you place your faith in a Jesus that doesn't exist, and you respond in a way the Scripture says will not bring you salvation, what in the world would make you think that somebody is saved for doing that, for believing on an imaginary Jesus? What was the gospel that the apostles preached? God, sin, Christ, repenting faith. Friends, you, you and I can get that right, can't we? Those four things? I mean, write them down if you have trouble with them. Those four things we can get right. Now, I want to close by talking to three different groups of people that are here this morning. First, I want to talk to those of you who are sitting here this morning who are unbelievers and you know it. You're unbelievers and you know it. You've never trusted Christ. You've never been born again. You don't have any evidence of salvation in your life. You've never believed on Christ. You've never repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus. And you know that. You're trifling with the gospel because you understand a couple of very important things. Number one, you understand that the gospel demands are high and that you can't just take Jesus and add Him to your life or take your life and add it to Jesus. You understand, and rightly so, and I commend you for this, you understand that you have to die to yourself before you can ever be born again. You have to die. You have to be crushed under the weight of God's holiness, His righteousness, and His anger against sin before you'll call out for a Savior. You understand that right. But one thing you don't understand is that dying to yourself and being born again and calling out to God for mercy is the, is the most incredible, life-changing, transforming thing and that your most significant, important need is to have your sins forgiven. And if you reject Jesus Christ, there's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. There's no other Savior who has atoned for sin, who has paid the price, who has sacrificed his life and laid it down and atoned for the sins of all who will believe on him. There's no other sufficient Savior. And if you die without Him, you'll go to hell for all of eternity. And you will perish rightly and justly because God is a just God, a holy God, a righteous God. And He must punish sin. He has to. And He will not let sin or corruption or evil into His heaven. And so your greatest need is salvation in Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Not a personal relationship. I'm not asking you to judge Jesus Christ. I'm commanding you today on the basis of Scripture to repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Turn from your wickedness and your immorality and your rejection of Him and believe on the only Savior who is able to save you or you will perish. And by the way, God does love you. You receive that love in Christ. But that's not why you come to salvation. Not to receive the love. You come for forgiveness, for atonement, for sanctification. You come to flee from the wrath that is to come. Second, I want to talk to those of you who here, probably a small number, Who think you're saved, but you're not. You say, well, now how do I know? Right? You think you're saved, but you're not. Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Some of you are sitting here and you think you're saved. You think you've trusted in Jesus. You think you have salvation, but you don't. How do you know? Ask yourself this one question. Why did I come to the Savior? Was it to receive comfort? Was it to receive aid? Was it for more money? A better job? A fixed marriage? Help raising my kids? People come to the Savior for every reason under the sun, but forgiveness, which is the one thing that the Apostles said we desperately need more than anything else. Why did you come to Jesus? If you came to Jesus to get love, to get comfort, to get another relationship, to get joy, happiness, to get rescue from your loneliness, or anything else, friends, you have likely trusted an imaginary Jesus. And if you never have come to the point of being convicted over your sin and humbled before the throne of God, and His holiness and His righteousness, then you think you've come to Jesus because you've walked an aisle, you've prayed a prayer, some friend led you in some discussion, or you just accepted Jesus into your heart, or you were baptized, or your mom and dad led you through this prayer when you three and three and a half years old and you don't remember it, but you believe that you've accepted Jesus. You need to examine yourself to see if you're even in the faith. That's biblical, 2 Corinthians. Examine yourself. Say, why, why am I? Why did I come to Jesus, and did I really come to the Jesus that the New Testament presents as the Savior from sin? The third, I want to talk to those of you here who are believers, and that's the majority of you. Now listen, friends, I'm not here just to tip over your sacred cows and make you mad and make you feel guilty for having presented the gospel in terms of God's love, accepting Jesus, a personal relationship, or any of those other things. That was not the point. Here's the point. You and I need to use biblical jargon to communicate biblical truth. Okay? We, we don't need to. The gospel is the gospel. It is the most glorious, the most wonderful, the most life-changing, the most incredible message on the face of the earth. It is living. It is life-transforming. It has a life of its own. It, it cannot be destroyed. It is God's truth. It is the revelation of the nature and the character of God itself. And it is powerful to the salvation of all those who will believe. It is the power of God unto salvation. You don't need to gussy it up. You don't need to alter it. You don't need to pander it. You don't need to adjust it. You don't need to do anything to change it. Just present it as it is. God, sin, Christ, and faith. That's it. That's the Gospel. God, sin, Christ, and faith. Just give out that Gospel message. We don't need to feel guilty for having used the wrong jargon. This is an easy message to get straight. And you and I need to make sure that when we're presenting the gospel, we present it as the Bible presents it, as the apostles presented it, as Scripture illustrates it, in order that we might not run the danger of presenting people a gospel and a Savior that cannot save them from sin. If we do that, we are going to fill churches with false converts who think they're saved, but they are being lured to eternal damnation because they've believed in the wrong Jesus and the wrong gospel And the church has been complicit in helping in their damnation because we have neglected to tell them what the real gospel is, who the real God is, what their real problem is, who the real Savior is, and what the real response needs to be. God, sin, Christ, and faith. We can get that one right. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the revelation of your nature and your character in the person of Christ and in the glorious gospel, which is Your truth and Your power under salvation. Thank You that You did not send to us a life enhancement coach. You did not send to us a mere relationship. You did not send to us a piece of the pie that would fit into our lives, but that You sent us the very thing that we needed most, an infinite, eternal, glorious, mighty, and omnipotent Savior who is able to pay the price to secure our salvation and to present us faultless before the throne with exceeding joy. We thank you for a wonderful gospel truth, a wonderful salvation, in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ.